This is a series we're calling Over. Whether you're uh, here with us in person, or you're joining us at church online, or you're watching on demand, or you're listening to the podcast, thank you for being with us. Uh, We're four sessions into this series. We're talking about being overwhelmed with life, being overcommitted in our time and energy, being overdrawn financially, being overexposed, maybe because of social media. Last week, we t- or last time we talked about the idea of being overestimated in the context of our relationships. We talked about being overworked and pace of life. Today, this is the one we've been waiting for, today we're talking about money. In case you, yay for money, <laughs> in case you're suspicious of my timing, since a bunch of us got some bonus money from the federal government this week, this message has been on my calendar for this date, this topic, since December, because I plan in advance, so that's just a coincidence. But I want to start by saying we have a very weird relationship with money. We do. We have a really weird relationship with money, with finances. Here's a bottom line. I don't like to say I'm greedy. But if I'm really honest with myself, if I'm being dead honest, I probably am, at least this much. Put it this way, for sure, I'm greedier than I want to be. So what I want to do is I want to talk about money today, and this is sort of the big idea in this over-series We started with a statement a few weeks ago in part one, and it's true about every topic that we're talking about, and it's simply this, that what is true is more important than what we feel is true. So I might not feel like admitting that I'm greedy. I may not want to admit that I struggle with money in some areas, or I struggle in handling my money in some areas, but what is true is more important than what I feel is true. One thing that's true is that money has overwhelmed us as a culture. And this last year has been brutal. You know, because you may be like, oh man, the money situation's never been great, but these last 12 months, I mean, we're just trying to stay afloat and keep our head above water. I mean, we've been treading water for so long. I used to feel pretty secure in my job, but not anymore. And it's pretty scary when you think about what happens and how quickly it all goes away if the job goes away. So yeah, it's overwhelming. And even though my bank account may not technically be overdrawn, my ability to manage my finances and my emotional state about my finances is definitely overdrawn. So... What I want to do today is I want to have an honest conversation about money. So let's just be honest right up front. This is going to be uncomfortable at times for me. (laughs) Because if you think you're uncomfortable, um, I've done this once already this morning. Trust me, it's uncomfortable. In the last few months, I arrived at a place where I decided that we need to address issues that make us uncomfortable. If we're going to function as a family at Faith Community, if our church is going to do life as a family, then we need to have the difficult conversations that families need to have, whether we're talking about race relations in our country or the current state of politics and the fear and the anger that have permeated that world or the nonviolent way of Jesus or even our personal finances. If it's uncomfortable, probably means we ought to talk about it. So let's talk about it. Because frankly, you and I talk about money. It's part of doing life as a human, even if we're just talking to the voices in our heads with the struggle, with the relationship, with money. And here's the thing. Jesus talked about money a lot, 
And I think he talked about money so much because he knew about its potential to mess us up, like to totally mess up our lives. If there's tension or there's ever been tension in your marriage, maybe you used to be married, there's a good chance money is or was a factor. Money is a leading cause of failed marriages. It just is. And some of you might look back and you remember when you were struggling with money, when you didn't have money, and it caused tension in your marriage and in your home. And now that you seem to have more money, or at least you're making more money, you're still struggling with managing it, and you're struggling with the tension, and you still hate to talk about it within the context of your family. And most of us, whether you have money or not, we still get overwhelmed by the idea and the issues around money. And fortunately for us, the Bible speaks to this, and just like all these things that we've been talking about in this series, I think when we look at what the Bible has to say, it can be incredibly liberating, but before it becomes liberating, it gets difficult. So what I want to do is I want to help us kind of just get an honest heart check on where we are financially, because the one thing that you probably are not going to say about your state and money is you're probably not going to say that you're rich. Because we don't talk like that in our culture, even people who are rich. Even if you're rich, you don't say, go around, well, I'm rich. And here's the thing, pretty good chance you don't feel rich this morning. I know a lot of you would say, I don't feel rich. I mean, it's a struggle. Like every month, it's a struggle. I should have enough money, but for some reason, it's a struggle. I don't feel rich. So what you feel is true is this. What you feel is true is that I'm not rich, I'm not greedy, because I'm not, and I don't struggle with my stuff. That's what we feel. Then there's what's true. And when you're overwhelmed, what's true is more important than what you feel is true. This is a tough teaching. Jesus said some tough stuff. And this is one of those hard passages. But I know that when I'm overwhelmed, what I know is true is more important than what I feel is true. So we're going to lean into this. Here's the bottom line for this. This is what this is, what this is all driving to today. When you trust God with your money, you're finally, really, trusting God. When you trust God with your money, you're finally trusting God. And I know that sounds oversimplified, and I don't, it sounds like a cliche, and I don't like bumper sticker kind of sayings and all that, but so hear me out. You know I got more to say about it. One of the reasons I think we should talk about money in the church, and we should definitely talk about it more than we do, is, is it's not just a practical issue. It is a practical day-to-day issue. It's, it's a very practical day-to-day issue. You probably have some thoughts and take some actions about money every day. And families literally break up over not knowing how to handle money. And some of you might be so anxious about the money thing that it's affecting how you sleep at night. Or maybe you're in a season of prosperity right now, and maybe you still don't sleep at night because you're discovering that even though you finally got where you wanted to be financially, there's still something missing. So the bigger issue, and this is what we miss so much when we talk about money, is it's so much bigger than a practical day-to-day thing. This is about whether or not we're really trusting God. And the reason I love to talk about money in the church on Sunday mornings You caught that. Thank you. I don't like to talk about money in the church on Sunday mornings. I really don't. I don't know any pastors. Well, I don't know any pastors, but I don't know any. That's not true. (laughs) I have some some pastors who are friends. Um, I think. I don't know any pastors who, who like talking about money. When it appears that we like talking about money, we've rehearsed it very well. 
Because the deal is, it's like, oh, when we start, when we step into this setting and talk about money, it's like, oh, we're, it's a target on our back. It's like, there's another, there he goes, another pastor talking to another preacher, talking about money. All he wants is my money. Church never has enough money for some reason. They just want my money. So I'm not talking about this because this is my favorite topic. But Jesus talked about money as much as he did because he knew it was going to be a problem for us. And I think it's good that we talk about it because you're talking about it. Even if you're not talking about it with the people in your life, you're probably talking about it with the voices in your head. And it's a spiritual issue. When I'm in conversations with people, <laughs> just, just a heads up if you ever want to have this conversation with me, now you know. And they say things like, I just don't feel close to God these days. And I ask a bunch of questions. Questions like, why well, are you spending time alone with God? I mean, are you praying? They're like, well, kind of. I mean, I pray when I'm driving the car, and I, I'm listening to the radio, and I pray, and I pray when I need something. God doesn't seem to be answering. Well, are you reading your Bible? Oh, yeah, when I, like, when I think of it, I, I mean, I'm not much of a reader, but I kind of try to think about it, and maybe not as much as I'd like to. Are you in a small group? Like, are you connected with other believers? Well, I was, but I got kind of busy, and I didn't fit in, and those people didn't like me, which is fine, because I didn't really like them, turns out, but I'm not really a small group kind of person, and intimacy scares me, not that I'd ever say that out loud. Well, are you serving anywhere? Like, are you serving people? Are you serving in the church or in your community? Well, you know, I, I kind of, I'm doing all that stuff. Let's just say I'm doing all that stuff, kind of, pastor. If I really want the conversation to get awkward, because I am a fan of awkward, I'll ask, so where are things financially between you and God? Like, are you being generous with what you have? That's, a, by the way, a hard question to ask in the context of any conversation. And usually the response is, well, God love you, Pastor, but that's none of your business. You have crossed a line. We were talking about spiritual things. Now you're talking about money. That's really none of your business. I can't afford to give. I can't afford to be generous. I can't afford to give money away. I don't see what that has to do with anything anyway. I was talking about my relationship with God. You changed the subject. I've come to a place where I believe that when you trust God with your money, you're finally trusting God. So let's talk about what that looks like. So um, this, I'm just warning, is a tough teaching, so fasten your seatbelts. Um, I think the music was pretty good this morning. Uh, you've had a chance to visit with some friends today. I smelled some coffee out there, so that's all good stuff. But this is not going to be one of those days where you go out the door and like, wow, I really needed that today. Thank you so much, Todd. That was exactly what I needed. That teaching was what I was hoping for. I'm fine with not getting those comments today. Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be. There are four accounts of the life in the ministry of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. Four accounts written from four very different perspectives for four very different audiences, and I think it's important that we keep that in mind. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 17. If you're a Bible app user, it's right there on the event. It's all preloaded for you. We're going to put it on the screen too. Mark 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know this is the question, right? I mean, this is the question. We might phrase it differently. We might say something, well, how do I become a Christian? What do I have to do to get in good with God? Most people think if I'm a good enough person, if the good outweighs the bad, then hopefully that's enough to get me into heaven. And of course, when, what you learn when you study Christianity and you study the way of Jesus, it's not about what you do. It's about what God has done through the person of Jesus on our behalf. 
So his question kind of comes from a religious angle, but he's really missing the whole point. And because it was, it was going to be what Jesus would do uh, for him, and, and, and that changes everything. But he's like, no, 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 somehow I've got I to gotta earn God's favor. Like, what do I have to do? So Jesus says this, verse 18. <laughs> he's like, first of all, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Then he goes on. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So can you check those boxes? And he's like, teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Implication, but there's something missing. This next verse is so important. Look what happens in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I'm so glad that Mark included this. Mark was not an eyewitness. He interviewed eyewitnesses and he was commissioned uh, to, to do this research. And someone felt it was important enough to Mark to tell their story about what they saw, that in this really awkward interchange, Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Then <laughs> he drops the bomb. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then Come follow me. Sell everything. That's all he heard. That's all he heard. It's all I would hear. But I've worked so hard. Sell everything. You can't, I, I, this must be hyperbole. You can't really mean this literally, Jesus. So like, what, you're, I was working when other people were being lazy. Do you know how long I've waited for this? I've planned and I've planned and I've been patient. And I've been really disciplined for and, and everything I have, I've earned. And you want me to like, say that again. You want me to sell everything and give it to the poor? It's like Jesus could have said a lot of things right here. But I think in that moment when he looked into the man's eyes, he saw the heart issue. And he says the one thing he didn't want Jesus to say. I would prefer that he left that out as well. Sell everything. Like, what do you hear? Verse 22, at this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And we're like, oh, whew, good. Then this isn't for me because he had great wealth and I do not. Okay, so nice story. I think I see the point. Rich people are probably not so great after all. He should get rid of all of his stuff. Doesn't apply to me. Do you ever struggle to find stuff, to st- find space to store all your stuff? I won't ask how many of you rent storage space. It seems like every other building, con, uh, building project in our area and anywhere you look actually in America is a storage unit. Have you noticed? We have so much stuff that we don't know what to do with it. How many times does a, an entire Saturday project just to, it's just to clean out the basement or to clean out the garage so maybe we can get the car in there? Listen, in the global context, you are rich. You're like, yeah, but you don't, you, you are And you may know that intellectually because you've read about it or you've heard people who've traveled the world talk about it. But if you've ever experienced it, I mean, seen it with your eyes, smelled it, got some on your hands, then you know this to be true. But we all need to be reminded of the truth that in a global context, you and I are rich. We do have great wealth. 
And if you refuse to accept this from me, then, and I know you can't afford this, but you need to sign up for our next Guatemala mission whenever that happens to be, because you've got to see it with your own eyes. Sometimes we just need uh, a little perspective, a little shift in the perspective and a paradigm shift. Oh, here's an idea. Set, you think, oh, I can't afford that. Set that stimulus money aside and you'll be ready when we announce our next mission. You won't have to do any fundraising. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And we tend to think that great wealth makes us happy. So let's just be honest. This is a little bit unsettling. When we hear sell all your stuff, we're thinking, well, it's not my house because we need to live somewhere. Not my car because like, like, I need to get to work. Like, what do, you, what do you mean? Like, sell my stuff. Like, then I can follow you? Like, I didn't think this was complicated. I thought you made this easy, Jesus. What are we talking about? Do you think when Jesus said that, that he wants something from you? Or that it's possible he wants something for you? Because when we hear this, we all get defensive, okay? He wants something from me. See, I knew there was something to it. He wants my house. He wants my car. He wants my finances. He wants my affluence. He wants my vacations. He wants my retirement. He wants my comfort. He wants my dreams. He wants my sense of security. Jesus is against me going on vacation. I've earned my vacation. He's against me having a car that will start every time I turn the key. Jesus doesn't want me to have a decent house, apparently. What do you want from me, Jesus? I think perhaps we're asking the wrong question. Because does Jesus want something from us or does he want something for us. See, when we're faced with something like this, when we're overwhelmed, when we feel what we feel is true is less important than what is actually true, because what we feel is true is that He wants something from me. But what if, what if what is actually true is that He wants something for me? He wants something for you. What if that's true? The story in Mark 10 isn't over. Rich guy's gone, <coughs> but the, the conversation continues, and, and uh, Jesus looks around. Everybody's kind of like, what just happened here? This was so, like, out of the blue. We had no idea. This is really weird. Verse 23, Jesus looked around, said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed at his words. And they're like, what is this all about, Jesus? You are messing with our values here. Verse 24, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And it is. It is hard. Let's be really clear. Jesus is not talking about the afterlife. Okay? He's talking about, he isn't talking about heaven. He talked very little about heaven. He's talking about the kingdom in all of its fullness. He's talking about the kingdom in the here and now, the kingdom that he came to bring, the kingdom that came with him when he said in Mark chapter 1, he says, hey, good news, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God that he describes in great detail in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that kingdom is hard. And he says, verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you, like me, been around church a while, you've heard people explain this before because people have tried to explain this away for years. I've heard all kinds of stuff about it has something to do with a gate and the Jerusalem wall and it was known as this and the camels had to do this. And there, was, there was a gate, but it was a thousand years after Jesus said this. So I think, here's what I think Jesus is talking about. And, and here's what we do. We tend, to, we tend to try to explain away 
teaching that makes us uncomfortable. We tend to explain away teaching that, cause, that really calls us to difficult action. So here's what I think Jesus meant by this when he said camel. Here's what I, here's what I think, and I don't mean to insult anybody's intelligence or whatever, but this is what I think Jesus meant when he said camel. That, that's, that's what I think. I mean, I don't know what you pictured. That's actually two camels, just so you're clear on that. I know it's two camels. Um, that's what I think he meant. And I think when he said, I have a needle, I think what he meant was a needle. Can you even see it? It's got a little piece of thread there. Why this analogy? The camel was the biggest animal known to people in the first century in Palestine in the Middle East. The eye of a needle was, well, the eye of a needle. These days, if I have to thread a needle... I don't know whether to put my progressive lenses on or off. I just, it just doesn't work anymore. I don't know how to make it happen. Anyway, um, that has nothing to do with anything. He's saying it's easier for this great big beast to get through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. So let's put all this together. So first of all, Todd, you're saying I'm rich, even though I don't feel rich. You're saying I'm rich in global context compared to a lot of the world. I'm just an average American. So are you saying the average American can't get into heaven? No, this isn't about heaven. Hear how I argue with myself? I do this all the time. Um, This isn't about heaven. (laughs) This is a different understanding of the kingdom of God, all right? I think what it means is if you actually want to live the life Jesus has called you to live by the upside-down, inside-out, counterintuitive values of his kingdom, like love your enemies, pray for your enemies, turn the other cheek, care for the poor, keep quiet about your prayer life, invest in things that matter for eternity, don't worry about your stuff, don't judge people. If you really want to live life in the kingdom, here and now, as Jesus has called us to live, and at the same time, you want to maintain your relationship with all of your stuff and the false sense of security that you get from the stuff that you've accumulated and the identity that you find in your stuff and your status, that's just not going to work. You can't have it both ways. They're completely incompatible. Verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed, more shocked, more scandalized and said to each other, who then can be saved? <laughs> Still not. Jesus is like, you guys still aren't getting it. Verse 27, he looked at them and said, oh man, here's a verse that's been taken wildly out of context over and over and over. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So, just pet peeve warning. This is one of those verses that's lifted out of context all the time. We use it for our own purposes. Do you know why we take it out of context? When we take verses out of context, it's because we don't like it in the context, right? Or maybe it's like, well, honestly, I don't even think I know what the context is, but I sure love the idea. Yay, all things are possible. The other passage where Jesus says all things are possible is in the previous chapter in Mark chapter 9, and that is in the context, ready, of casting out demons. So I would say that if you find yourself caught up in a situation where you are actively casting out demons... First of all, could you please insta-story that? Because I would love to know what that looks like. Uh, but I don't, like, that's, that's probably not your everyday experience, right? And yet we, we'd rather not talk about the context because that weirds us out. So let's just apply this little phrase. 
And we, let's just apply it. All things are possible. With God, all things are possible. Let's apply it to whatever situation we want to, and we'll all feel better about our situation. Sorry, it's a little snarky, and I, I, I know my tendency. So I've got to take a breath. Listen, context matters. Context matters because otherwise you might be leaning into something. You might believing something, be believing something that's giving you hope, but it isn't even based in truth. And then you wonder, why didn't God come through for me? Because God, all things are possible. You said so. Why didn't you heal my loved one? Why didn't you fix my marriage? Why didn't you bail me out of this financial hole? I mean, all things are possible. I claim that verse. Posted it on my Facebook. And then God doesn't come through, listen, on a promise that he never made. And we walk away disappointed with God and angry with God. That's why context matters. So let's not reduce deep theological concepts to something that'll fit on a bumper sticker or on a social media meme or that'll read nicely in a song that'll play on Christian radio. Peter spoke up. We're not surprised. Peter spoke up. Because if it's an awkward situation and there's silence, Peter will fill the void. Peter speaks up and he says, well, we've left everything to follow you. <laughs> so look at us, Jesus. You know, we, we gave it up. We were commercial fishermen. We were successful businessmen. We gave up our business to follow you. Like Matthew, he used to collect taxes. I know it's kind of shady and he stole it all, but he had a ton of money. You know, he was loaded. We left it all behind to follow you, Jesus. So what about that? Jesus says, verse 29, I tell you, no one has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel. No one who's done that will just stop. Because like, honestly, Jesus, since we're just going to be honest here, like you talk about all these things we've left and that's not us at all. We're trying to accumulate these things. We're trying to accumulate houses and family and people and property and businesses and investments and popularity and recognition and That's what I'm trying to do with my life. I'm trying to accumulate it. But Jesus says, no one who's left all of that behind for the sake of me and my gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. And guess what? That's exactly what happened in the early church. Because Christians were known for their radical generosity. They decided we can give some of what we have. We can give a lot of what we have. Some of them said we can give all of what we have for the sake of others as an expression of love to others. And it revolutionized their culture. Christians became known as the most generous people in the first century and for their radical love and their radical generosity and it changed people's lives forever. So Jesus finishes his response this way, and he says, this kingdom of mine that I'm talking about, are you going to get this? It's upside down. He says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Most of us, let's be honest, spend our lives making sure that we are first. We spend an awful lot of time and energy making sure that we are first, because we're afraid of what might happen if we make ourselves last, if we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. Listen, when you trust God with your money, you're finally trusting God. But if you're at the point where you're like, well, I'll trust God with just about anything, really. I mean, I'm really, you know, just about anything. But money, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what that means. Well, you're not alone. So what does it mean to trust God with your money? 
Like, what does that look like? Do I sell my house? Do I sell my car? Please don't email me this afternoon. So put my house on the market. Don't know where I'm going to live. Got an extra room. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? Do I give up my vacation? What, is, what am I supposed to give up here? And we go crazy. Like, well, I'm going to turn to a monastic life, and I'm going to live in a monastery and become a monk and sit on the floor and learn some chants and eat cabbage all day. That's my new life. You can visit me once a year, but I can't talk to you. So see what you started. Here's the thing. This is about something deep inside of us. This is about something deep inside of me, something deep inside of you. It's something inside your spirit. This is about the posture of your heart and your mind toward your money, to trust God with your money. I mean, if we look at it this way, God created the universe, and what I have, my wealth, my great wealth, my money, comes from God. Then if that's the case, then it probably belongs to God in the first place because it was derived from what was made in the universe. It's God's, and that's that's why Christians talk about stewardship. Like, I don't really own this. I just get to manage it. So I have to manage it well. But what happens is we tend to manage it for ourselves, for our own benefit, for the little kingdom of me and what I want and what I think I need. So what should we do? Like, trust God with my money. What's that look like? What should we do? I'm going to give you two points. Number one, this, come, this is going to come as a great surprise to you that a pastor in a church at a podium on Sunday would say this about money. Number one, give. Oh, so shocking. I know, right? You're like, yeah, that's predictable. I know, but it's important. Here's why it's important. Because giving is the best antidote to greed. You struggle with greed? Give it away. The practice of giving is such a powerful discipline Because otherwise, isn't this true about us? Our tendency is to spend whatever we have on ourselves. That's our tendency. And until we have the means, you know, we didn't even realize that we wanted the bigger house. We didn't realize we wanted the newer car. We didn't realize we wanted this year's technology or that vacation or this entertainment or whatever the thing is. But now I have means, so now I'm thinking about it. Here's a radical question. What if giving was the biggest single line item in your family budget? Think about what the biggest line item is in your family budget, and what if that's how much you were able to give every month? How cool would that be, right? I mean, wouldn't you love to get to that place? You would, right? Are you with me? Would you love to get to that place? Because some of us aren't as generous as we'd like to be, and we'd love to get to that place. The rest of us just love our stuff, apparently. So, okay, whatever. You're like, no, what are you going to ask me to do if I nod my head? Hang with me. Here's the thing. (laughs) Here's the thing. This idea of giving becoming the biggest line item in our family budget will never happen if it doesn't find its way into our monthly budget to start with on some level. Like, you got to start somewhere. And listen, this starts with a decision. It starts with some conversations within your family. And it grows and becomes a bigger part of your life by, doing, by making different decisions, different decisions about your money when it comes to your money. And if you don't think you can afford to give, let's, can we just all be really honest for a second? <clears throat> well, for, this is going to be a good place to talk about the elephant in the room. This past week, Many of us got a nice big gift from the federal government. You're like, that was this week, and all of a sudden you're on your phone. Don't look now. There'll be a surprise for lunchtime. 
I've been doing a lot of an, uh, analysis on this, and I might be off on this, but from what I can tell, and uh, not very tuned in with this stuff, but from what I can tell, this whole stimulus package thing seems to be a t- tiny bit political. <laughs> Pretty politically charged, right? Nobody's neutral on this. Nobody. Some people have had a really rough 12 months. This money will make a big difference for them. But for others, I've talked to some of you and you're actually doing, you've told me you're doing better than you were a year ago because your income hasn't been affected. But at the same time, you're spending less money because where are you going to spend it? You aren't eating out. You're not traveling. You're not spending a lot of money in entertainment. So I was doing a little thinking doing what most of us do, a little math for fun. Eighty percent of the people in our church are eligible for the new stimulus money, and I think that's very conservative. And I don't mean that politically. I'm just like conservative as the word means. If 80% of the people in our church are eligible for the new stimulus money, which is bonus money, right? If 25% of those people are in a bad way financially, like they need the money to pay the rent, to pay the, get caught up in the fuel bill, to put food on the table, then by all means. But if the remaining 75% tithed on this money, that would amount to 20,000 extra dollars in the offering at Faith Community over the next few weeks. Here's something I want to challenge you with, and I'm just going to kind of stare maybe, I'll just stare at the camera, although that'll make you uncomfortable. Sorry, I'll stare at the curtain back there. (laughs) If you land in a place, just hang with me because I'm being serious. If you land in a place politically where you think this was a terrible piece of legislation for whatever reason, I want to challenge you to do something really bold. Since you're philosophically opposed to this kind of handout from the federal government, You know who you are. Give it all away. I'm not kidding. For once, let's put our money where our politics are. Just for once. If you have strongly held opinions about that, deep philosophical views, you've made it clear on social media, who are you giving it to? How are you going to give it all away? Man, that could be a whole lot of fun. Find a charity that's serving people in need, give them your stimulus money. Can you imagine the good that would be done just in our community if everybody who's opposed to this politically, everybody who's opposed to this package actually gave all that money to organizations that are helping people? Well, it's better in our hands than the federal government. Oh, it's probably better in the hands of somebody who's actually serving people. Even if you think you're off the hook, the rest of you, I want to challenge you to tithe this money. A tithe, by definition, is 10%. But if that isn't doable, do something. And here's my caveat. I need to be real clear about this, okay? Just so you know, this isn't about the church being on the receiving end, okay? Take 10% of your stimulus money, those of you who can't give the whole thing away or whatever, take 10% of your stimulus money and give it away. Do some research might be a neighbor that would really benefit from that. 
Pick a charity, a nonprofit. Pick a couple of them. Do some real good with this money. And you want to do something really radical. When you're doing that, set up a recurring donation and commit to give something every month. I don't care if it's $10 or $1,000 a month. It feels really awkward in here right now. Just <laughs> got you thinking. See, just like the idea we talked about a few weeks ago, we said we were talking about time and time management. We said, well, I don't have the time. When we said what the truth is, that we don't make the time, well, uh, you have the money. We just decide to spend it on something else, usually. You're like, yeah, like rent and groceries. I understand that. But even if that, don't we all spend a little money carelessly? So what if we just started to make better, more intentional decisions about our money so that we could be more generous with what we have? Because who doesn't want to be more generous? So number one is give. Number two is get some good advice. And you're like, yeah, not like this advice. Well, whatever. Get some good advice because we can find ourselves overwhelmed by finances. And it doesn't matter whether you have money or don't have money. We need some good advice sometimes. And maybe you're like, well, I you know, really can't imagine uh, because like giving, this whole thing, because I'm un- so underwater, sideways, overdrawn, upside down financially, however you want to say it. I don't know how it's possible. Or I could give, but I'm kind of scared because I need the security of a certain amount of money, you know, right there that I can lean into. Get some good advice. But be careful, right? Because most people's advice would be, oh, well, first of all, you've got to make more money. So work some more hours, get a second job, make more money. You've got to make more money for yourself. That's not the kind of advice I'm talking about. Find someone who values the practice of generosity. Find someone, they don't have to have a lot of money, it might blow your mind. Just find someone who has demonstrated that they are living their life with a spirit of generosity. Now, in the past, we've offered some financial, like personal financial management classes here. We haven't done that in a while, but it's on our radar. In fact, we're having discussions about that this week. So we put an interest form in the lobby. Um, we're going to put one online as well, on, or send it out by email probably. We don't know any of the details yet, but if there's enough interest, we'll explore the details, the days, the times, how long, costs, whether we're doing childcare, all that. And if you're interested in learning more about what our next you know, financial management class might look like, get your name on that list. It's there in the lobby. Um, we'll make sure you're in the loop, and we'll consult you about the details. There's no obligation, all right? Um, but we just want to get as practical as we can. So if we're going to say get some good advice, we want to do our part in offering that environment where you can get those resources. So this is my hope uh, for you. This is not something we want from you. This is something we want for you. We want us all to be able to live by biblical principles when it comes to our money, to value what God values when it comes to our money, because when we trust God with our money, then we're finally, really, trusting God. Let me ask you this, and then I'm done. If you're not trusting God with your money, why not? Like, like why not? Like, I mean, where exactly has God shown that He can't be trusted? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a tough teaching. It's a tough teaching that doesn't resolve easily. It doesn't resolve into some feel-good emotion. But may we just be reminded today when we strip everything else away that you looked at this rich young man, you saw him, 
and you loved him. And you're looking at us, the church in America, with everything that we have, with all of our comforts and conveniences, with all of our abundance, and you love us. And you want something for us, not something from us. And as challenging as this is, as much as this might be the last frontier of trust for some of us, to trust you with our money, it's easy to pretend that this isn't a big issue, that it's just a practical thing, that it isn't a spiritual matter, but it is. So Heavenly Father, where you've spoken to us today, where your Holy Spirit has prompted us today, nudged us out of our comfort, would you give us courage and the discipline to act, to follow through, to give, to ask for help, to learn, to trust you with our money so that the message of the gospel and the work of your kingdom (coughs) would flourish even in our time. And for all that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name.